You're listening to the Agency X Podcast, and I'm your host, John Sertikowski, founder and CEO at Avex, an e-commerce agency for high-growth brands. My goal is to provide insight into e-commerce, technology, business, and everything in between. Make sure you subscribe to be notified about new episodes and visit our website, avexdesigns.com. Most of you are probably entrepreneurs, freelancers, agency owners, brand owners, operators, etc. And one thing I get asked a lot about is my journey, how I got started, and more importantly, what are some of the key things that I focused on to build my business and achieve some level of success. Um, And I, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of those things today. Most of these are for freelancers or agency owners, but the, the vast majority could be applied to pretty much any business. So I, I, first I'm going to start off a little bit about you know, how I got started, my kind of transition from being a practitioner and a freelancer to, um, to being an agency owner. And what were some of those milestones and, and also some of the things you should be focusing on in those early days, maybe when you're, you have an, a business or an agency that's between 1 and 20 employees. Um, beyond that, things tend to change a little bit. But I think some of the key things that I'm going to list out today are really valuable and important for those smaller agencies or freelancers to focus on, especially if you plan on growing into a larger team. Um, So where I got started was early 2000s, probably 2003 or so, is when I started to, um, is when I started to freelance a little bit more and focus on my skills. Back then it was Flash websites. Flash was the big thing. Back then Macromedia uh, owned it before they sold it to Adobe. And uh, Flash was what most websites were built back then. It was either with Flash animation or utilizing HTML tables and, and CSS. So in school, I went to a, a trade school, not, not like a real college. I got kicked out of real community college and went to kind of like a trade community college for two years. Most of what they were teaching were ASP, HTML, CSS, heavy emphasis on Flash, heavy emphasis on Photoshop. And I came out knowing that I just wanted to do Flash websites and design, you know, animation and things like that. And for the most part, that was what a lot of websites were built on using and and that's what I did. Um, You know, I had some jobs doing some photo editing in the Diamond District in New York, helping some jewelry brand put their photos and posts on eBay. Um, But that was just killing some time until I could find a real job. The, The turning point and the first job that I got that I felt was a real, a real game changer was when I started to work for a independent hip hop record label and they needed design and flash animation and things like that. And that led to, 
doing more flash evites back in the day, like 2005 and around those, that era, um, in, especially in New York City, all of the club promoters would send out flash evites, which were like basically a JPEG and an email and you click on it and it was like, you know, some music and animation promoting their event. Um, <clears throat> so I did a lot for a lot of the big clubs in New York City. And the record label was tied to a event promotion or a nightlife promotion company. So I started to do a bunch of those and, and I got really good at them. So some people noticed and I started to get hired more and more for those. Um, I ended up going to work for a, a nightlife company called Junebug in New York City. That was a big, it was a big nightlife company. And they did a lot of events. So 99% of my job was doing flashy vites, some design, some light HTML and CSS, but very little. And then from there, got noticed more and started to work for a company called Strategic Group, which ended up owning like Marquee and Tau and all of those, that whole group and doing some design and flash animation there. Um, after that, it was freelance and working for some ad agencies doing boring like banners for MasterCard. So I worked for some of the largest ad agencies in New York, like Havas and BBDO and uh, McCann Erickson, um, a few brands here and there like Estee Lauder and Nickelodeon, and mostly doing some design and Flash. 2007 hits and the iPhone comes out and Flash is basically, you know, becomes non-existent. And this is where the rise of responsive design came in. And I would say that that was a huge turning point in my career. I was working for these ad agencies and a couple of like smaller, smaller digital agencies. And they weren't really talking about or thinking about responsive design. It was still either Flash or it was HTML and mobile was a second thought. And I knew mobile was the future. I knew that, um, you know, we needed to really focus on building responsive websites. So I became obsessed with HTML and CSS and best practices and user experience, mostly on WordPress. And I started to follow people like legends in the HTML, CSS, semantics, and like, you know, best practices world, uh, like Jeffrey Zeldman and um, uh, a book apart, a list apart, like those books were, you know, everything to me. And it taught me a lot about, not only about um, HTML, CSS, WordPress, and building responsive websites and accessible websites. But it also taught me about running agencies. They had some books about freelancers, like how to price jobs, how to, you know, be more of a business owner and utilize my skill set and my craft um, as a real business. <clears throat> Didn't get into how to run the business yet, but more so how to put proposals together and invoices and just be more professional. So some years of freelancing, really focusing on best practices, building WordPress websites, started to get some more attention from actual brands. So one, one company reached out to me called Liberty Fashion Fairs. And they're a New York City-based fashion trade show that 
happens in at the time I think just New York and maybe Vegas or Florida, so Miami. Uh, but I, I think they're now in Milan and some other places if they're still operating. I think they are. Uh, but in that world, there was Atrium, which was a clothing brand, and also Kith was kind of tied to some of the owners of Liberty Fashion Fairs. And this is when Kith was still very popular in the street world community, but not as mainstream and well-known as they are now. So I did the Liberty Fashion Fairs website on WordPress, and through my networking connections there, I was introduced to Kith. Now, there's a kind of a, some similarities here between in the past, my, in my career, and freelancing was the, the, the relatable thing here is networking. The relatable thing is through having multiple different jobs and working with the right people and building a network not intentionally really, just producing really great work for a specific type of clientele or specific um, type of business led me to be introduced to others. Now, some would say this is luck and, you know, maybe a bit of it is luck, but a large portion of it is, is just kind of expanding your area for luck. So the more you network, the more that you um, niche down and focus on a specific community or a specific genre, the more chances you have of something of an opportunity being put in front of you so that that's going to be a, a trend throughout everything that i'm talking about right now so introduced to kith did a user experience audit for them some time went on and then after a while they wanted a complete redesign um i don't remember what year this was I and mean, you were like five six years ago seven years ago so what and um we did a full-on website for them now rewind a little bit was prior to that um i was still designing and coding these websites at about that mark when we started to get some brands well when i started to get some brands of notoriety i hired one of my friends and that worked out for about a year um, and then he moved on to another career um, parted on good terms uh, but he really helped on the design side while i worked with some freelance developers or coded the websites myself and also took on project management. And, you know, if you're a freelancer or if you're starting a business, you know, you got to pretty much take on everything. I won't list them all because I was pretty much doing everything. So then hired another designer and he helped out a ton because he was doing kind of taking on 50% of my responsibilities, project management, some dev work, um, design. And, you know, we hired maybe an intern and maybe one more person from there. But um, in those early days, the number one thing I would say to focus on, and that's where we're going to start getting into this list of things that I really focused on that I want you to take away and, and, to, um, and to use, would be having that cornerstone case study. Now, I know my situation might be unique. It's not easy to get a really well-known brand, um, but... You need to be able to network. You need to be able to be known for one thing. It took some took years to be able to do that. I got really well known for designing really great websites. Um, I did that for a lot of brands, and many of them were done very cheap. And it expanded my network and my area for luck. 
which allowed me to get, you know, a larger brand like Kith and, you know, also Pony Sneakers. And there was also a brand group that reached out. And, you know, the, the, I would say that the, the key things that really kind of the three things in those early days that led to that cornerstone case study, having a really well-known brand was one niching down and being known for doing one thing very well focusing on search engine optimization and content for that one thing and then being able to turn that win into a case study that could get more wins in the future so kind of taking a step back when i started to freelance i was writing blog posts like crazy Um, i was blogging uh, every day or every week about my craft, about my skill, about my journey. Um, that helped with SEO. I was really, really dead set on focusing on coming up for freelance web designer New York. That was what I was obsessed with because there's so many New York businesses. And regardless, it could be your location. It could be another location. It doesn't have to be based off of a, a, demo, um, a geography. It could be based off of anything. But it was a long tail keyword that I saw opportunity in. So focusing on content around that one topic, focusing on SEO, led to working with more and more of the types of brands I wanted to win. Now, this isn't over the course of six months. This isn't over the course of over one year. This is over the course of, let's say, 2013, 14, 15, 16. This is over the course of four or five years to be able to, um, to be able to, build notoriety, expand my network, um, and also be able to um, rank for the terms that I really needed to rank for and really wanted to rank for. So those are the things that that focused on in the early days. That led to that cornerstone case study. So to kind of recap, niche down, focusing on what you do really, really well, write content about it. Now, back then it was blog posts more, so it was less about social media. So today, you know, you would focus more on social media, posting on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera. So, you know, th- those are the things that I-, I think are most important right now is, is you know, being becoming known for doing one thing extremely well and expanding that area for luck um, and getting that cornerstone case study. Once you have that cornerstone case study, that's going to be that driver of similar types of projects. Um, you know, and and that's also going to help you define your ideal customer profile. What are you selling? Well, not, you're not only selling services, but you're selling trust and expertise in something very specific. So what are you selling? Um, identifying your ideal customer profile, really niching down, putting content out there. You have your cornerstone case study. Now you could, you know, you're, you're moving away from being a freelancer or moving away from being um, um, just a practitioner into starting to build a business. So now you're, you, you have those key things down. Um, before you have those cornerstone, that cornerstone case study down, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for you to focus on things like processes and, and, um, really honing your proposals or building a team or, um, 
you know, partnerships or all of the things that larger agencies do. I think you need to, when you're one employee, two, three, four employees, the, the core things that you need to be focusing on, uh, focusing in on are building that cornerstone case study, your ideal customer profile, becoming known for one thing. Whether you're, you know, a freelancer or you've already, um, you know, have a few projects under your belt and you hired a couple people or you have a partner, those are the things that I think are most important in the beginning. So now, as we move into starting to build a team, you know, where do you start first? What's that first hire? So for me, those first hires were, you know, early, very early on, it was a designer, um, just because, you know, I wanted to focus more on, on the business and on execution and also leveraging freelancers for development. So there's your resources that, you know, you could hire a designer and have that designer be more than just a designer. Um, it's rare. I had that for a little bit. It didn't work out in the long term because, you know, if you have a designer that's doing eight different things beyond design, um, you know, you're going to lose them. Uh, they're they're, they're going to want to focus on one thing. Um, whereas if you have someone who's more about who could take on multiple tasks, like a project manager. A key project manager could be someone who's involved in invoicing, project management, account management, um, building processes. And that's exactly what I did. One of my key hires was in, uh, someone who had very little experience, maybe a couple years of experience as, as a PM or an AM, um, not even in e-commerce, came in and really hit the ground running when it came to, you know, I had loose processes that I, I was building. Now, this is when we're about three people. So this is where you really need to focus on on your processes and systems. And that was me doing something that I did multiple different times, getting it out of my head and into, you know, at the time, Google Docs. Notion, I don't think it was around yet. Or if it was, it wasn't as utilized. But getting that into Google Docs or Notion, specifically using Loom to be able to record those videos and teach that person had to do it very much MVP style, very much bootstrapped. But then that person would then have a playbook to go after, after and, and improve upon that and document that uh, herself. So that was a huge thing. So given an example, um, you know, onboarding a project. What would I do when we first onboarded someone? And in the, in back then in the case, it was, okay, well, you know, First thing, introduce the project manager. Next step, send out the invoices. Next step, being able to set up an introduction call. Next step, being able to review the scope of work with them. Next step, you know, tasking the designers with creating something, creating a prototype, you know, getting that QA, passing it over to dev, reviewing the estimate, et cetera. Like just, you know, the, the basic things of that process. And same thing for invoicing or for uh, sending out a proposal, et cetera. She would then take that and then document that even further. And, you know, we've already, you know, as we've grown, once we hit about 10 or 12 people, then, you know, you, you rewrite those because, you know, you have more people involved. But having those processes documented in the early stages are, are, are paramount. Um, so now you have the, you're starting to document these systems. So you, as you start to build your team, they'll know what to do. And you want to be able to hire people that can learn from that and then improve upon that. And that would be, a, that's a compounding effect. Um, not every single hire is going to be able to improve upon that system. But if you have passionate people that are willing to add to that, 
it's going to compound over time. So now you have a project manager who is more focused on operations and, and execution and delivery. Then you bring in a designer who's optimizing your design processes. You bring in a developer who could help with, you know, optimizing those processes. And over time, that's going to compound to just improving everything overall. And, you know, I didn't hire highly experienced people. I hired people who were very motivated and who had some experience, but they were definitely willing to learn and had things to bring to the table. They had ideas. So now you have your cornerstone case study. You're producing content for that one thing. Um, You're getting known for that one thing. You're starting to build your team and build your processes and systems. This is where you're at maybe about five employees. Now you 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 have to start honing in your proposals because you are likely starting to get more work and bigger work hopefully and you know having a great proposal and something that's going to crush it is really important Um, you need to be able to be different than a few slides talking about your agency and the scope of work that was my proposals some years years ago were a lot about who we are and you know about us and things like that and you know, all this fluff and not enough about how we were solving their problem. It was talking more about the deliverables that they were going to get. Nowadays, we don't even list the deliverables in our proposals. Sometimes there's a slide about high-level deliverables, but we're not talking about that. Now, if I would have learned this earlier on, um, I probably would have won a lot more projects than I did um, in, in those, you know, earlier days. So the key things here, first, you, you need to be, be able to build trust with them. That's prior to the proposal. You're not getting to the proposal stage, nor should you present a proposal if you feel that this person does not trust you. I'm not saying that the entire company has to trust you, but at least one person that is the one of the decision makers or at least is advising the decision maker needs to trust you. How do you build that trust? Well, on those earlier calls, you need to be able to ask the right questions, the questions there that are going to get you to providing advice for them. If you, if someone comes to you and they just want a website, you want to understand why. What's the problem with their current website? What do they need a website for? What are they trying to do with it? What mistakes have they made in the past? You know, what's the ultimate end result that they want? It's not just a new website. They want to be able to either provide a better customer experience. They want to be able to improve back office operations. They want to be able to increase conversions, increase sales, increase revenue, increase profits. You know, you're, you're in B2B. So the vast majority of what you're doing is trying to increase revenue for your customers, regardless of if you're doing design development or optimization or marketing. So really learn what their pain points are and then be able to provide expert advice early on. You want to be able to show them that you are the professional in the room, that you know what you're talking about. And, but you, more importantly, you have to ask the right questions to get there. If you just do that right off the bat, they're going to know something's up. They're going to know, wait, how does he know this much about my business without asking those questions? Let them tell you what you want, what they want, and you'll have that answer. And just you need to be able to speak it back to them in a professional way that that high level solves their pain point once you get there the the rest of it is just you know of course you want you want your proposal to talk about your process and why it's unique and how it gets to the end result not just the deliverable but the end result most importantly you need to show them what that end result is in the proposal 
whether it's a better design system, it's a faster website, it's conversions, depending on what your tool is and what you're selling, you need to show them what that end result is and why it's different from competitors. If you compete on price, you're going to lose. Because that brings me to my next point about increasing rates and you know, you don't want to undercut twin projects. Um, you, you want to be able to increase those rates. And how to do that is you have to have a really great proposal that outlines why you're different, not a full story about your agency, how it started, and, and you know, the list of services. You should, of course, have your list of services and things like that or, you know, a little bit about your agency. But the vast, that's about 5% or less. The vast majority needs to be about their project, their problems, your solution and the end result that you're all aiming for. But you're not going to be able to compete on price. That is not the way to build a bigger business. It's a way to win a bunch of projects and have smaller margins. You want to be able to increase your rates and to do that you need to be able to prove your value. Once you're able to do that and you're able to increase your rates, let's say you lose 50% more projects, but if you doubled your rates, you're going to be able to keep the same amount of revenue, more profits, and less work. Now, it's really easy to say to just double your prices, but honestly, yeah, you really just need to increase your prices. Chances are. Um, chances are you're not charging enough. Um, and you, you can't be afraid to lose projects. You need to test it on some, see what works and what doesn't, and figure out what your what your services are worth. If you're just doing development and you're just pitching in on hours, it's going to be very hard to scale the business that way. It's going to be very hard to be able to, yeah, operations will be easier. Yeah, it's easier to bill and it's transparent with with clients, but you're not going to be able to scale from there. You need to have a differentiator and you need to be able to um, sell on that differentiator and that value that you're bringing to their business. Um, you know, I, I know some of these are high level and I'd love to be able to dive into, you know, increasing rates and, and how to do that. And maybe that'll be a completely separate podcast, but really talking about ways that you could, um, you could increase rates and there's various ways to do it, whether it's, you know, removing hours and focus more on the value based on just deliverables, you know, there's pros and cons to that. Uh, but at the end of the day, chances are when you're at this size, you're not charging enough. Um, and part of that goes back to finding the right clients, your ideal cl- customer profile, focusing on all of the things that I mentioned previously to be able to get those right clients. Um, so a few other things that I think you know could could likely have their own their own episode is uh, knowing your customers and niching down, um, content marketing and SEO. These are things that I mentioned earlier that could really help drive um, a lot of growth your agencies but now you're at like say the 5 to 10 10 to 20 range um, things start to change at that point Um, what you're doing as a founder is going to be very different than what you you were doing when you were five people Um, it becomes more of a you you basically become in the business of managing people Um, what does that mean well you're starting to focus more on culture you, you're likely still involved in sales, you know, so you're going to have to wear a few different hats. But a lot of what you're doing is involved in culture until you bring on an HR or various other people to help manage that. Um, hiring, 
firing, switching people around, um, and, and, and just making sure that you have the right people in the right seats. That's extremely important. And that will be indefinitely. Now, maybe it's not your specific role in, in the future to worry about if designers and developers or you know certain resources are in the right seats. That, as you start to get bigger, it's more about, you know, is your leadership team in the right place? And their responsibilities will be for the management and for, you know, the resources. But, you know, for, for the sake of this, um, this podcast, I think taking a few steps back to, and kind of recapping some of the things that I touched on were, you know, identifying your ICP, you know, that may come with some trial and error, as mentioned before, you know, you need to be able to niche down, produce content, put it out there, identify those paid points, identify your ICP, expand your area for luck, for luck and get that cornerstone case study. So become known for one thing. And it doesn't have to be a Fortune 500 brand. It doesn't have to be a household name. It just needs to be a really good case study that's going to speak to your results and your services that's going to attract more of those. Um, and that's something that never stops, right? You know, even today, years in and 40 employees, we're still looking for more case studies that we could get to, that's going to speak to our area of expertise. Um, and sometimes those things, those things will change. But you have your cornerstone case study. Now you're building your team. Really heavy focus on processes and systems that I can't stress that enough. Um, and, and as you start to build your team and then being able to focus on certain things outside of just delivery, which would be sales, proposals, increasing your rates, really focusing on the wins, right? Um, and then hiring the right people that could focus on the delivery of that. Um, I think on the next episode, we'll talk a little bit about what happens after you reach that 15, 20 person mark and, and some of the things you should be focusing on there. Um, so that's a little bit about my expertise or rather my experience in going from freelancer through to building an agency and some of the things that worked really well for me. Um, would love to touch on some of them in the next episode, some of the other things as we start to grow. grow. Um, and I just want to recap that and really stress that this did not happen over a few months. This happened over years. So if you're in it right now, one, two, three years into it, and you're not seeing the results that you are, focus on the things that I mentioned and give it time. Those are the things that are going to really pay dividends in the year in the years to come. Um, so yeah, feel free to hit me up if you have any questions on LinkedIn. You could DM me. I'm ha always happy to answer them. You know, visit our website, avixdesigns.com for some more information about our agency. Um, but definitely reach out to me on LinkedIn if you have any questions about anything we spoke about today. Um, and I look forward to the next podcast where we could touch a little bit more on uh, some of those things agencies and businesses should focus on um, as you start to grow. Thank you for listening to the Agency X podcast. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please make sure to subscribe. And if you want to learn more about our services, you can find me on LinkedIn. You could also find me on Twitter at Jay Serta or visit our website, avixdesigns.com.